Hello, thank you for joining LTC NAC Chat, a podcast brought to you by the American Association of Post-Acute Care Nursing, APACN. I'm your host, Amy Stewart, Chief Nursing Officer for APACN. I'm here today with Jesse McGill, Curriculum Development Specialist with APACN. Jesse joins us to answer questions our members have asked about the updates coming to Section GG, Functional Abilities and Goals. Welcome, Jesse. Thanks, Amy. I'm glad to be here today. We have had many members ask questions regarding the October 1st changes to Section GG. These questions have been submitted to our nurses, posted in the community, and asked on the recent APACN Live Q&A webinar. Jesse, the most common question has been about the requirements for Section GG documentation. Can you clarify what is required and give our listeners some best practices? Oh, thanks, Amy. And that is a great place to start. So the most important thing to recognize when it comes to documentation is that CMS does not mandate or prescribe how we do our documentation. They really leave this up to the facility or the organization to create policies and procedures in order to use documentation in a way that works for that facility. And so your facility can use this as an opportunity to look at how Section GG documentation will work best with your workload, with your caseload, with your residents, with your staff to develop a process that will clearly collect the documentation needed. Now, one of the important things to recognize with Section GG is there's really two parts. And the first part is data collection. So we have to know what actually occurred during that three-day window. And this is where we collect information from all staff involved with the resident. So we're collecting information from direct care staff, from the nurses, from the therapist. We may even have documentation from activities and we can interview the resident and talk to the family. So we're really collecting information from all of those sources. Now, how that's documented is, again, up to your facility. So you could, for example, do paper documentation for the CNAs to complete during their shift. You could do electronic documentation. You could have a person delegated to interview the direct care staff during that window to ask them about how the resident's performing in these tasks that the direct care staff is involved in. Now, keeping in mind that the direct care staff is going to be a vital piece of information because they are the ones that are helping the resident eat. They're helping the resident with bed mobility in and out of the bed to the toilets. They're doing the transfers and oftentimes completing these tasks multiple times per day. So we have to collect that information from that direct care staff. And again, we can do this in a variety of ways. It can be paper documentation, electronic interview, or a combination of all of those. And in addition to your drug care staff, you may have formal assessments completed. A nurse may have completed a mobility assessment or the therapist completed an evaluation during that three-day window. And all of that data that's completed and documented during that three-day window is key for the second part, which is the determination of usual performance. Now, CMS did clarify that this is an assessment of usual performance and it must be completed by a qualified clinician. And during our conference, our virtual conference, there was several questions about 
can an LPN complete this? In order to answer that, you actually have to look to your state practice act to see if you are a clinician that is allowed to complete an assessment. So again, that's a per state specific question, so we can't answer it today. But the important thing is this is an assessment of usual performance. And so you have to follow within federal state guidelines that you're allowed to complete that assessment. Now, when we're completing that usual performance, this is, again, by the qualified clinician, and this can be completed outside of the three-day window. CMS did clarify that in a recent Q&A document from the SNF QRP post-acute care training. And this document clarified that you can complete the determination of usual performance outside of that three-day window as long as that is based on information that is completed and documented within the three-day window. So you have to have documentation within the window, and then you can use that information outside the window to evaluate and complete your assessment on the resident's usual performance. Thank you for sharing those best practices, Jesse. Now let's talk about the retirement of Section G and the impact it will have on coding other items. For example, Section G has previously defined what is considered a wheelchair. Members want to know, how is this addressed in the updated RAI user's manual? So, Amy, when Section G was retired, CMS actually pretty much copy and pasted a couple of items directly into GG. So we have functional limitation and range of motion and mobility devices that are essentially the same and just moved to new items under GG. There were also some items that were simply retired, like the balance items are simply not on the new MDS. So when we look at the coding instructions, for example, GG120 mobility devices, that is now where we have the instructions on what is included as a wheelchair item under GG. And you'll probably find this familiar if you were familiar with the G item. The final manual clarifies that when the mobility items was moved to section GG, we now have GG120C wheelchair items. And this is coded when a resident normally sits in a wheelchair when moving about and includes wheelchairs that are hand propelled, motorized, or pushed by another person. It also clarifies that we do not include jerry chairs, reclining chairs with wheels, positioning chairs, scooters, or other types of specialty chairs. So that does answer that very specific question of what is now considered a wheelchair under section GG. But I want to take that a step further because when we're actually coding the wheelchair items in section GG 170 mobility, there's a few more things we have to consider from the coding tips and instructions from that section. And the first is that the key is that the wheelchair items are only coded for residents who are learning to use a wheelchair for self-mobilization or already use a wheelchair for mobilization. That does tie back to that wheelchair item that we just talked about where it said the resident normally sits in a wheelchair when moving about. So that, that really just clarifies that this is a mobility device and must be used for mobility, not just to sit in because it's more comfortable at the dining room table or for convenience. This is just for mobility. But the section GG170 section further clarifies that if a wheelchair is only used to transport a resident for convenience, say to the room to the therapy gym or out to a car for an appointment, 
that is just used to get the resident from point A to point B. The resident is not learning to self-mobilize and not using it as a mobility device. It's simply a transportation device for the resident. So in those cases, the wheelchair, even though it was used during the three-day window, would not be considered for Section GG170 wheelchair items because it's used for staff convenience and transportation, not for mobilization. Thank you for that great information, Jesse. Many of our listeners are in states that use case mix reimbursement with a legacy resource utilization group or rug group. What changes can these listeners expect this fall? Oh, I wish that was an easy question to answer, Amy, but it's actually quite complex. So the first thing is, is that this is a state by state question. So I'm first going to say, if you're not aware of what your state is doing, reach out to your state Medicaid office for more information. Now, I want to clarify that if your state does not use the MDS for reimbursements, the changes coming this October will likely not impact you. But you may want to reach out to your state Medicaid agency to see if there's any changes anyways so that you're aware. But pretty much states have two options to prepare for the changes this fall. Now, I am aware that a lot of states have already implemented these changes and transitioned to the new requirements or they are looking to transition this October or maybe not even until January. But the key is, is that they have two options. They can either require states to complete an OSA or change the payment model away from one of the legacy rug models. So the OSA is the optional state assessment. This is an additional assessment that is in addition to already required OBRA and PPS assessments, and it cannot be combined with any other assessment. It's always going to be a standalone state-only required assessment. So for the states that require the OSA, there's actually a separate item set and a separate OSA manual that's available on the CMS MDS webpage. And when you have an OSA required, you're still going to be completing section G items for just the G late loss ADLs. So bed mobility, transfer, eating, and toileting. You'll also complete items that have been removed from the OBRA assessment, like the therapy minutes, since that is still one of the items used in the rug calculation. Now, if you are a state that transitioned to a PDPM-based payment model, this is, again, something where we can't just talk really specifically about what this looks for your state because states are using a lot of different methodologies. So some states are using only the nursing component, and some states are using a combination of nursing and NTA, or they may be incorporating more of a full PDPM payment model. So again, it's important to talk to your state about how these changes coming October 1st will impact your state and your Medicaid payments, essentially. Since it's so state-specific, you really have to get that information directly from your state. Or in some cases, you may have a state, the Medicaid is managed by a, a contract agency such as Myers and Stoffers, and then reaching out to your contact with Myers and Stoffers for what changes are coming your way and what education they may be providing. Again, thank you for that information. We'll have to stay tuned and see which states decide to go with the OSA. I know some are still making that decision. Another question we've received is about the impact of GG over multiple areas. Since OBRA assessments will include only GG data and we will only be writing cause using triggers from GG and with the GG lingo, 
Should we change our care plans to reflect Section GG terminology? Oh, this is a great question, Amy. And one of the things that I want all of our listeners to consider is how nuanced the Section GG performance scale is and that it may not show the detailed level that's needed for a care plan. So with the exception of independent and setup and cleanup, which are fairly self-explanatory, I would not recommend using the exact GG performance scale lingo in the care plan. And let me elaborate on why. So if you were to determine that a resident is, say, usually dependent for transfers on the admission MDS. So if you were going to say, okay, we're just going to put that the resident's dependent for transfers in the care plan. Well, here's some different scenarios of when a resident would be coded as dependent on the MDS and GG. Obviously, if they were full staff assist of one helper, that would be a dependent level of care. But also, if they needed guided maneuvering for a pivot transfer with two staff, the second staff needed to manage the equipment as the first staff helped with the guided maneuvering. It would also be dependent if you had to transfer with weight-bearing assist of two. And it would also be dependent if you transferred with a mechanical stand lift with assist of two or with a full body mechanical lift with assist of two. So as you can see, there's a lot of things that fall under that umbrella of dependent that would be coded accurately on the MDS. But on your care plan, I would use more descriptive terminology that is within that realm of dependent, but actually tells the staff what they need to do. Like I previously mentioned, have a care plan that the resident needs weight-bearing assist of two for transfers. This clearly tells the staff that they are going to be lifting limbs and trunk in order to help bear weight to transfer, and they need two staff to do it. So again, more descriptive terminology. Now, I also want you to consider the other performance scales, so partial, moderate, and substantial maximal. Now, both of these are weight-bearing levels of assist with only one helper, but the determination between the two is whether or not there's more than half or less than half of the effort. And that could change from activity to activity, to task to task, and from day to day. So the care planning is more important to reflect that the CNAs need to provide that weight-bearing level of assist of one person for the task, and then educate the nurse aides on when they're completing their documentation, how to determine the more than half or less than half the effort. We don't want to pre-assign this so that if they are completing less than half the effort, but their care plan, because they usually require more than half the effort, We don't want that documented inappropriately because the care plan is saying a higher level of assistance than really what's actually being required. So really letting the CNAs know what level of assist they need, not whether or not they will be doing more or less than half the effort. And the last group in this GG performance scale is the supervision or touching assist, which really is a wide range of assist levels. So this includes supervision only. It includes verbal cues. It includes steady and assist, guided maneuvering, and all other non-weight-bearing support. So rather than care planning that the resident needs supervision slash touching assistance, as it is in that category on the MDS, Use that more descriptive language of exactly what the resident needs. So specify if they only need supervision or if they need supervision with some verbal cues or if they are needing that non-weight-bearing support, whether it's contact guard, steadying assist, or guided maneuvering. Thank you for sharing that information. 
Jesse, one quick follow-up question on that. Do you think that facilities should be changing their care plans so they're ready to go on October 1st, or do they have a little bit more time? You know, Amy, if we use the descriptive language, that would apply regardless of the performance skill being used. So if you were to say the resident transfers with weight-bearing assist of two, if you are a facility using G up until October 1st, transitioning to GG, or will continue to use G in the form of the OSA, this still applies appropriately and accurately. So where we end up seeing a problem is when the care plan says extensive assist, and then we no longer have a definition of extensive assist once G is retired, because that is specific to section G ADLs. But using a descriptive term such as weight-bearing assist of two meets that criteria of extensive assist under G and dependent under GG, but it's a more accurate description of what the CNAs will actually need to do for that care. Thank you for that follow-up answer. Is there anything else that you would like to share with our listeners? Uh, One final thing I would really like the listeners to consider is that section GG does not use the rule of three. It's not an average of how the performed. It's not the median or the mean. There's no mathematical equation or algorithm for GG. And that's one thing that some folks might miss as section G is retired is because you could follow the rule of three with section G and say, yes, you're right, or no, you're wrong. And with section GG, it is a clinical judgment. So there's going to be times when the usual performance is very obvious, such as a resident who always ate with setup help only during all meals of the window. And we can easily say this resident usually eats with setup help only. Or there will be times when there's very significant fluctuations from shift to shift or day to day within that three-day window. And the clinician must be able to make that clinical judgment. Now, this is based on all of the data within the three-day window to determine what the resident's usual performance is. And making this clinical judgment is something that some clinicians may not be very comfortable with yet because we're used to having that very black and white rule of three where there is always a correct answer. And what I would recommend is looking at the cases, especially when you need to use that clinical judgment and you have that team of qualified clinicians working towards a usual performance determination and document the rationale that you use to come to your coding decision. Now, if that rationale is documented, this not only supports how you came to that determination of usual performance for that task, but also will help for anyone else looking at your medical record, looking at the MDS during a chart review or a medical review. This will support how you came to that clinical judgment. So whether or not the person assessing agrees with your final determination, they can at least say that you did make the clinical judgment, which is required in order to come to a determination of usual performance. Great information, Jesse. Thanks for sharing your expertise with our listeners today. Listeners, thank you for joining us. For more resources and tools for nurse assessment coordinators, please visit our website at www.aapacn.org. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the LTC NACChat podcast.